Hey guys, hope you're all doing well. Before we hop into this week's podcast, just want to give a quick handoff to Blockware Solutions. If you're looking to get involved with mining or staking, it's a great time to do so with us. We do all things from hardware, hosting, as well as staking with several different protocols aside from Bitcoin, although we are a Bitcoin-focused company. If you're looking to get involved with any of those things, you can contact us on the Contact Us page on the BlockwareSolutions.com website, as well as email us at contact at BlockwareSolutions.com. Hope you guys enjoy the podcast. I'll see you in a second. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. Today, we have an extremely special guest for you, one of my good friends and someone I've learned a lot from over the last year or so, founder of Capriol Investments, Charles Edwards. Charles, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Great to be here, Will. This is long overdue, man. I'm really happy to, to get you on the show. Yeah, no, definitely. I've been a big fan of your work as well and uh as we were just briefly chatting about before i yeah you've it's been really great to watch your journey and uh growth through ct crypto twitter and uh you're putting out great content so keep it up thanks brother it means a lot before we before we dive in maybe just kind of give a high level of who are you how you get into the space and, and what do you do in the space yeah so i'm the founder of capital investments uh we're a quantitative asset manager and fund and we primarily deploy capital through autonomous trading strategies. So algorithms which take long, short uh, positions in Bitcoin, Ethereum and other crypto assets. We also have a portion of the, our, our strategies in identifying deep value or undervalued um, projects or tokens, investments, which we think are mispriced by the market. And that was a pretty small element of, our, of, of my and, and our, um, our investment thesis, but it's, it's growing as I think there's a, a lot more opportunity there today. So yeah, we deploy capital in the Capriolo Fund um, on those strategies for professional investors globally. And um, yeah, that's my, my job. And being founder consumes most of my time and uh, research in the space, yeah. How is Capriol Investment structured? How much of the fund is divided into discretionary trading versus systematic trading? Um, I know some of this maybe you can't answer, but if you want to just kind of give us the high level of how, how the fund works. Yeah, it's a it's a master fund uh, for in, uh, professional investors globally, and the capital is yeah, the vast majority is on autonomous algorithms. Um, and then you know the team might do some quantitative analysis and identify long term positions, but otherwise, yeah, we primarily deploy on autonomous trading strategies. And Charles, like when you wake up in the morning, what is kind of your I guess mental framework for the market? Does it you know, change day to day? What are, what are some of the things that when you roll over in bed, you want to kind of get up to speed after you were asleep? You know, what do you check first? What do you kind of go through? Do you have a mental checklist in the morning? How does that work for you? Yeah, it, it, honestly, it's, it's pretty simple because we, Astrays are mostly automated. So I don't need to go and check, you know, too many metrics to, on, on a regular basis to make sure everything's aligned. But the main thing obviously is price, uh, see what's happening. And, and if, you know, that usually drives where you'll look next for me. So primarily that being Bitcoin and then the stock market. And if there's been something significant, you might look at what could be driving that. And then if it's a big move, often Twitter gives you the answer in a few seconds. If you go on there, maybe, you know, like an invasion of Ukraine or something is going on. I feel like you could go on Twitter um, and like, <laughs> and you could tell the price based off of the type of tweets and the timeline. You just do like a 30 second scroll through and you're like, all right, we're probably nuked. 
Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so so that's probably my you know first 10, 15 minutes of the day. And then I am often just spending you know the bulk of my day just researching individual topics or just diving deep into individual metrics or stats. Um, and provided there's no like exceptional events or risk happening, then that will be most of my time. What are the different like forms of analysis you look at? Um, albeit, you know, I remember listening to the podcast with Preston, you talked about how you look at technicals on chain and macro. What are, what are some of the different forms of analysis that you implement in your mind and how do they kind of, uh, how are they weighed in your mind as well? Yeah. That, so the, the constituents are basically the same as what you just said. So technicals, fundamentals, macro. And when I say fundamentals for Bitcoin, it basically means everything, as you know, which is not price and volume. Um, so that's pretty much the same, but their weighting has fluxed massively, particularly over the last year. But um, uh, it generally just goes through periods of change and, and the market's always changing. Uh, if I had to put a rough number to it now, it's, it's probably like, just for considering Bitcoin price action, like 50% Bitcoin and 50% macro. Bitcoin being like everything historically you've thought of or, or seen as a valuable metric for price and what drives price movements. And then, you know, that could be on chain or momentum or whatever it may be. And, and then the remainder is kind of more macro now. And I think that's, you know, the, the market just gone through massive change in the last year with, with institutional adoption and, and all the banks and um, investment firms in crypto. And, you know, as we've talked about and, and has talked about a lot in this space, but value at risk models, and there's just been a lot more correlation with stock markets. So when we used to have like one or two weeks of correlation where Bitcoin moved like a stock, I mean, that might've happened two or three times a year. Now it's like, what, 60, 70% of the time we're correlated. Um, and not necessarily when we go up, but when there's a down move, like any one, one and a half percent down move in the stock market is like a multiplier, like effect, like the down on steroids for Bitcoin. Um, so, so you just have to pay more attention to that stuff. Um, and I think the longer we go through this, windows of correlation there's obviously an increasing probability that that will snap at some point and where we are today after a three-month kind of downtrend and extreme correlation to the stock market and war and de-risking and everything being priced in and sentiment like near all-time lows in you know aai so um, the sentiment metric for the stock market all those things kind of a lie. I think there's, there's going to be a point where we snap out of that at least for a few weeks, maybe a couple of months. Um, but it's just, and, and that's kind of where the Bitcoin metrics are important, right? Like, are we relatively under or overvalued um, from a Bitcoin perspective? But we just need to obviously weight those macro elements more um, going forward. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Avi Feldman. I'm, I'm guessing you are from, from Block Tower. Um, he had this good tweet that I really liked maybe a week or a week or two ago. And he basically said, certainty about uncertainty is at an all time high. And yeah. I think that's, that's a really good um, way to put it. And kind of, I, I think that ties into a lot of things, a lot of things you're saying. And I think as well, when you look at the, um, the correlation of Bitcoin, for example, I often look at like just the correlation to the NASDAQ. 
Um, I, I think it's interesting to see how tight that correlation has been with Bitcoin in a downtrend. And the reason I say that is when you kind of put that into context, to me, what that's illustrating is that you had a lot of macro funds or just market participants that care about the correlation to the NASDAQ in general that had been offloading inventory because we, when you put it into context, we were in a downtrend. So I think it, it kind of becomes a question of like, how much of that inventory has been offloaded over the last few months of market participants that are going to sell because of some aggressive rate hikes? And I guess that kind of segues into my next question of how much, you know, how much hawkishness, quote unquote, do you think is priced in, uh, albeit through looking at Bitcoin centric metrics or macro related metrics? Yeah. So specifically to the Fed with yeah. hawkishness. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I... Hard to say for sure, but a, a high proportion, maybe 70, 80, 90%, um, I would guess, would be priced in. Uh, I think in terms of how the stock market can move, it, it can always, and Bitcoin, right? Even if it's undervalued, it can always go further. <laughs> so, so there's always events, extremity, you know, short squeezes, supply squeezes, and anything which can trigger things to move further. So I wouldn't go so far as to say it's 100% priced in, but the market has definitely been pricing it in for the last three months. Um, and I just don't think the Fed can be as aggressive anywhere near like it plans. So, yeah, I, there's, a, there's a possibility that the next rate rise, which if, if it does happen in sort of March, pending, uh, you know, more global uh, geopolitical issues, uh, I think... It could be a buy the news event. It, it probably won't have much impact unless it's a, a major shock. I just don't see, unless they do rate rises in multiples of what was expected, I don't think it's going to have that much of an impact in the near term. The only thing that would change my mind there is if in sort of nine months to a year and a half from now, if they just said, now nah, we're just going to continue doing these rate rises, I think that would be surprising and probably the economy would be struggling at that point and that could then start to cause damage um i i just think that just based on how powell and the fed has acted in the last few years and, and how they made a bit of a mistake in 2018 with tightening and i think they're probably going to give it a bit of more likely to to ease in, in into that latter sort of one year to one and a half year two years from now period so I think most of that downside is probably priced in, but you, you just, you have to adapt and see how strong they really do come and how things, you know, happen day to day, I guess. Do you think US midterms play any role in that of, as to when maybe we'll start to see <laughs> easing again following the time? I know a lot of this is like extremely speculative at this point, but it seems like kind of they're, they're in this situation where it's almost this binary situation where either they can combat inflation or they can continue to let assets run. Mm. And so they kind of have this, they're in this position where it's like they have to choose the, the better of two terrible choices. And it almost seems like, you know, at least if they if they choose to tighten in the intermediate term, at least, you know, obviously it's not a, a you know great option, but at least they're able to kind of maintain that control and have wiggle room to lower the rates back down. So do you think that's kind of like a accurate kind of high level of that and and as well do you again do you think like kind of the the midterm of you know elections at the end of the year do you think that may be kind of a turnkey point for when maybe we would start to see easing again in the future yeah i think i think that general assessment is right in terms of what is driving attention being inflation versus you know stock market appreciation and the focus is definitely now on inflation and and 
controlling that because obviously you've gotten to a level now where it's pretty extreme. Uh, I'd be speculating if I said it was because of elections or not. Uh, you know, there's I know there's a few rumors circling around that that topic that it could be a, a driving force and it could well be. I'm not sure, but I I am convinced that the Fed is much more interested now in getting a bit of a handle on inflation, at least in the near term, that that narrative will probably shift in future quarters. But for now, they need to because it's impacting people's lives pretty substantially. And um, and historically, if, if the stock market hasn't corrected, you know, 20 plus percent or it hasn't had a huge sharp move in a short period of time, then then the Fed doesn't really care that much. Um, or, or much less than when you've got an inflation figure like seven and a half percent anyway. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Charles, what do you think about a lot of this kind of, I don't want to get too political here. I personally don't love to get political. I'm assuming you won't. So I won't try one to put you in that, in that spot, but with everything going on with Canada, we got a lot of censorship stuff mm-hmm. in general, along with like Joe Rogan as well. Do you see this as kind of a bullish catalyst for Bitcoin? Do you think it doesn't matter? How do you kind of see that on spectrum of things in terms of Bitcoin? Yeah, I, well, I think long term, it's just a massive marketing campaign for Bitcoin. Um, I must admit, I'm not deeply across at all the, the Canada situation, but you don't even, you, all you need to hear is protests and banks being blocked to be like, there's something wrong with that. <laughs> um, and, and regardless of whether it's wrong or not, people have to find other financial means and to be free. And, and that obviously is a great a great marketing campaign for Bitcoin, which is decentralized hard money. And, and yeah, so a lot of these events and things, tensions globally, everything's kind of bubbling up in different areas and, and it's all kind of driving towards Bitcoin. <laughs> so um, yeah, I think you couldn't, it, like if you just take, forget about all the, the metrics and data, if you just take a five, 10 year horizon, yeah, it's extremely bullish, I think for Bitcoin. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I completely agree with you. Like, I think yesterday or the day before, I basically had put a tweet out and said, like, you know, remove your opinion about the truckers, right? Because, like, I don't think any of us on Twitter are here to, like, press our political views on people. But, you know, when you just remove your opinion about them and just assess the situation for what it is, as you said, it's like people are getting their bank accounts frozen. They're going to have to find another way to to store uh, store their wealth or store their value, however you want to phrase that. And so... It's almost like kind of a all roads lead to Bitcoin type of yeah. type of deal in this situation. Yeah, and it's just everything that's happening right now, it's it's just kind of it's kind of scary. Like I know you've read a lot of Ray Dalio stuff as well, yeah. and like all of the fears and things he's talked about, but especially in the last five years, he's talked about a lot. It's kind of all like playing out in the wrong direction. Yeah. Um, like yeah, the. Russia invasion of Ukraine the other day, uh, you know, who knows how far it will go, but it's definitely a step in the wrong direction. It's very sad and concerning. Um, and yeah, it just all plays into that end of bid deck cycle narrative and increasing probability of fair currency failure and new currency adoption. So yeah, all of these things kind of fit into, yeah, Bitcoin. like I, sometimes I just think about what assets other than Bitcoin, would you want to invest in? And it's all—it's hard to find anything comparable to to Bitcoin. So, yeah, yeah totally. Pretty, like, what, what else? Bullish. What else would you <laughs> want to hold in a time of geopolitical uncertainty like this? You know, hard money that's not controlled by anybody that you could take anywhere in the world in your brain. I mean, that's that's the, the one thing that I certainly <laughs> would want to own, if anything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's 
it's miles ahead of anything else. Um, obviously, you can always find some deeply undervalued investment in in some niche place, but from a macros perspective, it's yeah, it's hard to beat Bitcoin. What do you think about this Russia stuff? Obviously, it's it's terrible to see, and nobody wants war. Um, but you know, given the sanctions that are now being placed on them, uh, I saw something. I don't know if this was in response to the sanctions, but uh, there was some bill in Russia being passed to approve something around Bitcoin. Um, maybe you saw more specifics than me, but um, the kind of overarching question I'm asking here is, do you think that um, Russia maybe using for Bitcoin to navigate sanctions is a fundamentally bullish thing for Bitcoin? Because I think on one hand, it's like, obviously, um, obviously it's, it's, it's good in the sense that Bitcoin is basically being advertised as censorship resistant money, permissionless money that, you know, you can, no one can tell you if you can or can't use it. But at the same time, it's got to be a pretty bad look for the world to be seeing Russia as like the main kind of adopter using this technology. And in the US, in my mind, maybe that would incentivize them to, you know, take some type of, um, you know, regulations against Bitcoin in theory. Yeah. So, yeah, disregarding all the political and cultural challenges of it. If you just look at the economic side, I, I think a week ago, uh, you know, Russia making these moves, you know, legalizing or, or making a lot of progress with with Bitcoin was was really bullish. Now I'm not so sure because if all major you know first world countries are sanctioning Russia, and if Russia continues to invade, and if those sanctions basically extend. To the extremity of potentially being cut off from SWIFT and money payments. In theory, if, if Russia was to circumvent that through cryptocurrencies, that would, I think that would be a bad look from most other developed countries. And uh, and that could, you know, potentially slow down things in those countries to, to utilize Bitcoin. Um, in, it's hard to say, it, like it, you have to string together all these sequences of events to get to a conclusion where you know, there's the probabilities of each one happening a small or a small or hard to tell. So I, it, it remains to be seen how that develops. I just, yeah, if, if it is established that Russia is kind of like an enemy effectively of, of the EU and the US, uh, then them utilizing another currency probably isn't necessarily a great thing. You could have a counter argument there that, well, if they did use it a lot, then the other countries need to, to create, to gain power. So there's a few dynamics. So it's just for me personally, it's not as bullish as it was pre, you know, war effectively. Um, that said, I like, I still think Russia, even if they were to go full Bitcoin adoption is like years away from that being significant. There's a chart going around Twitter the other day showing their balance of, of reserve currencies and the US dollar was like 50% five or 10 years ago or more. And now it's like, I can't remember the number, but 10 or 20%. So it's significantly smaller. The yuan and other currencies have taken bigger positions. So for Bitcoin to become any kind of measure, you know, tangible value of their reserve, it will probably take years in reality. Um, Haven't they been so, buying yeah. gold for a while? Yeah, exactly. They've been building up gold as well significantly. Yeah. You think maybe that, that plays into the bid we've seen in gold over the last month or two? Potentially. I think... Uh, I think war in general is probably paying into that bid and just the market uncertainties in general. Um, gold usually does well in that environment. Uh, so yeah, from a technical level, gold looks really good at the moment. 
be nice yeah. if Bitcoin would follow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I actually like not uh, like I'm not taking any action off this, but I suspect that if there is a major breakout in gold, I, th I think Bitcoin will probably, you know, maybe in the near term, maybe in a week or a month or three or whatever from now, I think that there will be some shift in, in correlation because Bitcoin does usually cycle from correlation of stocks to gold. And I think uh, we're probably due for a, a period of high correlation to gold. So it'll be interesting to see how that all unfolds in the coming months. So I want to, I want to talk correlation for a minute. I think it's, I think it's really interesting kind of what you had just brought about how Bitcoin goes through these cycles of correlation, right? And it, it almost ties into just natural like market psychology that whenever you're at extremes and behavior on the spec on one end of the spectrum, everyone always thinks that that specific behavior is going to continue forever, whether yeah. that be price appreciation or just kind of like underlying behaviors in the market. And so, you know, lately over, as you kind of talked about earlier, it's, is that like over the last month or two, we've seen an extremely high correlation, like 0.96 when I do like the yeah. correlation coefficient on TradingView with the NASDAQ, at least. Um, I'm sure it's something similar with S&P. Um, and, I, you know, it, it, it almost seems like whenever we get to these extremities where everyone on crypto Twitter is talking about, you know, you've got the five minute candles with the guy with this, you know, the, the guy with the glasses like this. <laughs> like, you know, with the, I, yeah, I can't that, think of how yeah. else to describe it without making the face myself, but, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, when we, when we have all that stuff circulating on, on Twitter, it almost seems like, you know, okay, like you're probably going to see some type of swing back to the other end of the pendulum. Um, yeah. so I guess question for you would be, what do you think about that correlation in the short term? And then also, what do you think about that correlation over the longer term, you know, as, yeah. as the hyper kind of whatever we call it, hyper monetization or hyper adoption of Bitcoin occurs, what do you think that correlation will look like over time? Do you think it will increase or decrease with, with TradFi? Yeah, um, I yeah, totally agree with you. That, that pendulum is a great analogy. The, the market always moves from extreme to extreme in, in pretty much every metric, whether it be this or sentiment or over undervaluation of, of anything you can think of and, and supply and demand in general. And, it, you know, once you have everyone focused on something or once everyone's buying to something at your all-time highs and all the, you know, in the near term, at least all the buyers that can buy bought, it's just natural for, for price to move the other way as an example. Um, so yeah, correlation, I think, is similar, um, at least in the short term. Uh, so we've now had, as you say, two or three months, extremely high correlation, which for Bitcoin is pretty rare. At, at least it, it doesn't usually last this long and as deep. So I, I think we are due in the, you know, you can't put a time on it, but it's like a probability thing. The longer you're there, it, it, it's same with everything, funding rates, all those kind of things. The longer you're in an extremity, the higher the probability of a movement to the other direction. So I think that's that's right. That's probably we're due for a bit of a, a counter move in correlations. And that's why I kind of noted on gold there as well. Um, in the long term, you know, over yearly plus horizons, I think those correlations are just going to increase um, or at least stay comparable to where they are now, just because of the market players we have. Um, and, you know, that, that, you know, being institutions, of course, whereas, you know, right, rewind two years, all we had was traders and miners, really, and miners with the big players. And of, of course, a few OGs who accumulated Bitcoin in the early days, but now, it is institutional driven. Now Bitcoin's a trillion dollar asset. It is, you know, kind of a TradFi asset in a way now, or it's becoming that. So um, those 
we can just expect a lot more periods of, of higher correlation in the future. That makes a lot of sense. What do you think about the current derivative setup? I guess the, the kind of high, the high level thing for me that I've been watching is just this, I look at like the aggregated, you know, delta between spot and perps. And we've been in this prolonged period of spot premium for like two months. And like similar to what you said, whenever we are at one end of an extremity, it's almost like the longer we're in a regime and the more aggressive that regime is, whenever you revert out of it, the more aggressive that reversion is likely to be, is, is more likely to be. And so like it, when you when you look at like the premium, we've been in a consistent spot premium again for the last two months, but not only that, but it's gone more and more aggressive towards spot mm-hmm. premium. So um, I don't know. That's the one thing I've been watching. Is there anything from a derivatives perspective over the last month or two that has kind of caught your eye that you've been paying attention to? Yeah, I look at I look at that stuff too. And for Bitcoin, that duration is is crazy. <laughs> well, we had something similar in in June, July last year. It was you know one to two months of below normal funding or negative funding, um, but pre 2021, like if you had just 12 hours of that, you had like almost 99% chance of a huge green candle. Like it was like an alpha money-making machine to, to counter trade that on the low time rate. Whereas now you, you can't because it can extend for long periods of time. And I think that's a function again of Bitcoin maturing, Bitcoin becoming more efficient and institutional adoption. You know, people are using, you know, Delta ARB strategies and the staff, they're hedging with it. Um, it. It could be used in, you know, ETF strategies. Also, there's so many different possibilities of how this is being used. Whereas, again, like I said, rewind two years, the only people using derivatives were um, were traders, which were speculating. So pure, it was, it was like a raw metric of speculation, which you, you can counter trade, obviously. Whereas today it's a lot much, it's so much more in that signal. So there's a lot of noise in the signal. It's, it's less useful. That said, I still think any extended period of, of one extreme, the other, like I said, results in, in a pendulum or a high probability of a pendulum switch. It just, it's hard to time exactly when that will be. There's usually some kind of trigger event, whether it be a short squeeze, whether it be a company or a country announcing they've got Bitcoin. Um, whether it be some other macro event which will just trigger a spike and then that just cascades everything again to the other direction. So um, I think we're in a very like extended decline period where you just basically need a spark to light this thing and we're going to get some serious movements. Um, but yeah, that's yeah the fund, funding and or, or per premium, you know, per spot difference uh, similar similar metric and it, it's useful um, it's just significantly less useful than it was two years ago um, but yeah that, it's just that's part of the changing market right all, all these metrics the more especially the more popular and known they become like on Twitter everyone talks about this stuff all the time now whereas if you go back um, a year and a half there were only some really in the know traders which were publicly sharing this stuff whereas now it's like common knowledge so all these factors align such that it's just not as useful as it once was yeah that, that makes a lot of sense i kind of want to talk uh on chain a bit so i know in the in the podcast you do with preston you explain hash ribbons as well as the energy value so I'll, I'll i'll let people listen to that i don't want to have you repeat yourself but 
for the supply delta, this is a new metric you came up with recently. Uh, kind of explain to people, how is this calculated? What kind of spawned the idea for this and what's kind of the methodology behind it? Yeah, that, that su supply delta is a pretty simple one. Um, it's just the combination of short-term and long-term holder supply. So the definition of short-term and long-term holders um, as coined by, well, at least this, this version of it, coined by Glassnode, is when someone's held some coins on chain for more than 155 days. And if they've held that long, there's a higher probability that they're in a separate class of investor and they're probably gonna hold it into the long-term and they're the long-term holders. Whereas the short-term holders, they tend to be a bit more spontaneous, speculative and trade with how price moves. So they're both alone, short-term holder supply, long-term holder supply, useful metrics and seeing where you are in a cycle, um, particularly at a multi-year sort of macro level. So it's not really a short time frame strategy. It's more of a long-term positional um, um, metric. But when you combine them, so what I did, I just simply deducted one from the other and um, normalized them over two years. And it just gave a pretty good signal of over and under, uh, over valuation, under valuation. Um, and it was better than each individual um, input alone because it, it showed the turns um, uh, quite a bit earlier, a number of weeks earlier than, than in each individual, um, you know, short-term holder supply or long-term holder supply data report. So that highlights, uh, yeah, significant over and undervaluation quite well, um, accumulation periods, which we're kind of in right now, actually, and then high risk periods, such as the 50 to 60K region of earlier last year, unfortunately, uh, didn't have the metric then, but uh, <laughs> it did, uh, if you had had it, it kind of highlighted that um, higher value, sorry, the high overvalue region quite well. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I think it's interesting confluence as well just with all other, you know, on-chain supply dynamics. Um, and with that, I guess it's kind of a segue to asking you about that. What do you think about just the general kind of overarching on-chain uh, setup? And then as well, specifically, just kind of some of these supply dynamics, you know, albeit through hodl waves, you know, dormancy, uh, you talked about long-term holder supply, illiquid supply, all these different things. It seems like there's just kind of a confluence across the board of what you essentially said that the fuel is laid out. It's kind of just a lack of spark in the demand, but the hodling behavior does appear to be strong. Would you agree with that? And what's kind of your overarching view of, of the on-chain setup currently? Yeah, you, you basically answered the question for me. <laughs> um, yeah, I totally agree. Uh, supply side looks very strong and, and signs of accumulation, even in your metric supply shock just is just continually going up. Um, hash rate uh, look, uh, has looked great in the last week, a little bit um, weakened in the last few days, but we had you know, readings 25% above the all-time high of a year ago when 60% of network shut down. So, We've recovered that 60% from China, elsewhere, and plus 25%. So that's really strong. Um, even you know, dynamic range NVT or the you know the, the P ratio Bitcoin was just green recently. Um, you got all these sort of long-term accumulation or historical cyclical accumulation signs happening. So we're definitely in a, I would say, a value zone for the long term. Like if you're gonna hold for two, three years plus, like you, you can't, you know, personal opinion, you can't go wrong here. Obviously not advice, but <laughs> my personal opinion. That said, uh, we we can, we could have some movement uh, further down. Uh, the, you know, normally Bitcoin will intersect with um, the energy value at least a few times in a bear market. We haven't even touched that yet. Um, Where's that now? Also, 
it's around 30, 35K um, in that region, uh, close to 30. So we, we didn't quite get there. And then production costs, we kind of tapped it, but very briefly uh, around similar level 30. We, we have in prior cycles as well, got to the electrical cost, which is the raw, um, literally the, the cost of, of mining one Bitcoin, just the energy input to run those rigs, like no other costs considered. So every time we got there, that's like the ultimate generational buy the dip moment. <laughs> um, and that's around the low twenties. Um, obviously it increases with time. So I'm not expecting us to just dump to 20K. Um, it's possible, but I'm not expecting it. Um, and yeah, so those levels, as I said, they'll rise with time if hash rate keeps going up. Um, so it is possible that price and, and, and those metrics just intersect with time, but I do think that we will visit them at some point. So if you are very patient, you could wait for something like that perhaps. Um, but otherwise, yeah, pretty much everything supply-wise is reading um, as undervalued, but we are missing that, that spark from, from the demand side in particular. And I think it's, it's going to be triggered by either a short squeeze in the coming you know, days, weeks, a month, maybe it's even starting now, but in the coming future, or, or any kind of announcement event, um, which could spawn new demand. Makes a lot of sense. I think kind of the high level is that like, from a broader sense, kind of like a, you know, an investor with like a six, nine month time horizon. I think the asymmetry is definitely positioned to the upside versus the downside. I mean, you had talked about the energy value production cost. I mean, there's confluence there as well with like realized price, as well as like long-term holder, realized price, um, delta price, a lot of these things, the 200 week, a lot of these things are kind of in that same area. And by the time if we did theoretically go down there, they probably would be in the upper twenties as kind of a worst yeah. case scenario type of deal. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, Maybe if you're a short-term trader, maybe you hold off. I don't know. But I think the way I'm personally approaching this and kind of advising my friends and family to approach this is, I think in a broader sense, you know, what the potential downside is over the next six, nine months versus the potential upside, it's it's drastically skewed, in my opinion, um, to the upside. But of course, uh, you know, not not a financial advice. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd broadly agree with that, except uh, instead of six to nine months, uh, I'd probably have a shorter window, maybe one to three, um, I think it's skewed to the upside. Then I just kind of want to see where things are at. Um, Cause these, as you know, th these metrics can change quickly day to day. Um, but yeah, I think, yeah, basically agree. It, it, it's skewed to the upside for sure. Um, it's definitely in a value zone. It's just not like deep, deep extreme value. And, and one thing we know from Bitcoin is that it fluctuates from massive extremities. Like it will shock everyone. <laughs> Yeah, um, so, so, so while people are like, oh, it's crazy that you think Bitcoin might go to 20K. I don't necessarily think that, but I just know that if there's one thing Bitcoin will do, it'll surprise people. Um, I, I don't think we'll ever get below 20 though. That's, I, I just don't, like some people talk about 14K and that 20K is not strong enough support. I don't think we're ever going to see the teams again. I think you'd have to be kind of fundamentally concerned about Bitcoin as an asset at that point, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, all of these, like we're already in the value zone from these metrics and, and the flaws, which for me is the electrical cost is already above that. So I just, just don't think it's even possible, but you know, things can change. Like if, if, you know, another country bans mining and then things start plummeting and hash rates 
go down a lot. Obviously, my view will change, but given the data we have today, it's just extremely unlikely. That makes a lot of sense. I think you framed it well. You know, the data the data could change over a, a couple month period. So definitely, a, I guess, dynamic opinion on that. Uh, I like the way you answered that. Um, one thing you mentioned about kind of the potential sparks, uh, you kind of briefly answered this, but what do you think some of the potential catalysts could be over the next um, year or so? I know even that's kind of a long time horizon to kind of predict some of these things. And obviously, you know, the the biggest catalysts are the ones you're not really expecting, but um, what are some of these things that you have in the back of your mind that could potentially kind of ignite that that fuel that we have laid out? Yeah. Um, yeah. Like I said, the biggest ones are the ones you don't expect and they're the ones which have the biggest impact. So like even Russia invading Ukraine, I, I would not have, you know, I thought, you know, sanity would hopefully prevail and I would not have seen that coming even two months ago. Um, so yeah, who knows what will pop up, but in, I think things are definitely skewed to the upside for the potential there of these catalysts. And it's, yeah, any any company in the S&P 500 announcing it's on their balance sheet or any country announcing they're adopting it as legal tender, kind of like El Salvador. And we've just seen how amazing that has been for El Salvador. Their, their GDP was up like double digits, first time ever since they adopted Bitcoin. And now obviously that's driven by extrinsic factors to that but that was like a huge marketing campaign for their country and and all the possibilities there so obviously like economically great decision that they did that um and i think other countries are definitely going to follow on that we're seeing so many like every day almost you you log on to twitter and it's like this country is legalized on their stock exchange or this country's got a bill for it or like there's so many i can't even keep track anymore it used to be like you might get one a quarter or something, but oh, wow. But now it's like daily, there's something happening. So I think we're so close to, um, we're so close to one of those announcements happening and depending on the size of the company or country, which makes that announcement, the will, will impact the rel, you know, will have a relatively weighted impact. Um, so I, yeah, I think there's going to be another country this year probably because you can't, you can't avoid how good it's been for El Salvador. And just given macroeconomic factors broadly, and I think there'll probably be a couple of companies in the S&P 500 uh, announce something similar, um, which I've said a few times, but I think there are a lot already accumulating. They just haven't said they're doing it. Um, And then going forward beyond one year, I think any uh, G20 country, that's going to be like the that's going to be the step change event. I think any G20 country says they've got Bitcoin in their balance sheet publicly. That's just going to cause like <laughs> mass hysteria to get Bitcoin from just people, but also other countries because they'll just have to have it at that point to be you know relevant in global economics and finance and and to hedge their bets. So that is going to be a massive multiplier when that happens. It, you know, probably not this year, but could be. You never know. Um, but within the coming years, I think it's going to happen, um, and that will be that will be pretty. That'll be that'll be massive. Yeah. Do you think the El Salvador bond could potentially be a catalyst, especially if it gets oversubscribed? Um, and and do you do you think it gets oversubscribed? Um, good question. I saw something the other day. I think it was I can't remember the, the details of it, but it looks like it was going quite well <laughs> for them. Um, I don't think so in terms of um, like major, you know, G twenty type level countries, but 
you know, its success, I think, will definitely, again, along with its GDP growth and everything it's seeing, <clears throat> will help promote that decision in other countries, smaller countries in particular. And yeah, once you've got two or three of those, it just it just continues to cascade and until more and more do the same. So it's hard to like if you even if you weight any individual company, country or company of, of doing this as like one percent or less, uh, it's like you add all of these probabilities together, and the probability happening is like almost a certainty. And then that you know what the impact will have on price and how adoption will accelerate from that it's just hugely skewed to the upside it's like massive r and r of like of this happening yeah it makes sense i do wonder as well will it be some type of micro strategy type deal where you know they're they basically open and openly announced that they're going to be buying 500 mil of, of btc so like do you see another 500 mil of oh. capital just front running that you know <clears throat> yeah that will be that will be huge i think um MicroStage's adoption was really good, obviously, but it kind of got to a point now where they've had so many of these raises, the incremental impact of one guy initiating another raise isn't, isn't that significant or the market doesn't really care that much. Um, and I've kind of been saying that since mid, uh, early to mid last year. It's, so I, I think another play, any other play, significant player doing something similar is, has a really big impact. So El Salvador obviously be one, and I think that will that will be uh, that will have a, a decent impact um, for sure. And yeah, each occurrence of these just increases the probability of another entity doing the same. Hey Charles, final topic before we wrap up. What do you think about the four-year cycle moving forward? Yeah, yeah. Um, I yeah, I wrote I wrote about this a bit in our in our January newsletter for 2022. Um, and my view is pretty much the same. So it, it's kind of comes to what I said at the start of this podcast, 50% Bitcoin, 50% macro at this point, give or take, right? So I think the, the halving cycle does have an impact. Um, I think that impact is diminishing with time. And I think macro is more important now, um, simply because like two years ago, the biggest players were miners, they were getting a lot of new supply. They controlled that. If they were in trouble, they, they dumped that on the market and that uh, you know, had huge impact on price. Uh, today, inflation rate is similar to, to gold and going down and mine, and therefore you know, the, the new supply that miners are getting is massively smaller. The bigger share of, of, of large players is now, I would say, institutional, ETFs, et cetera. So, naturally the macro dynamic just has a big impact and the impact of miners and 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 you know more traditional bitcoin related metric uh, metrics or entities is reducing with time it's just kind of shifting one way to the other so I, I think it will have some impact i think even the the next halving i think that even though the supply shock would be relatively negligible in each incremental four years is less and less I think it will still have an impact. It's still a narrative. It's still valuable. At that point, it will be even harder than gold. Um, so that will be a narrative in itself, um, which will drive, I think, um, some short-term price appreciation. Uh, so I think the cycles are relevant. It's just they're dampened. Um, the depths of them are dampened. We've even seen that in the last uh, four years, uh, sorry, the last one year, this cycle. So the last year where we didn't really have a blow off the top. Uh, we didn't have 
you know, huge influx of retail into crypto. And, and that alone, it, it, it's, it's a lot of things in one. It's, it's, it shows where the adoption is going institutional level. It shows um, that we just didn't get that relative level of evaluation. So we're not as likely to get as deep a correction. It shows the market's a bit more efficient now than it was. Um, it just moves very differently. So yeah, I, uh, I think the cycle is relevant. Just it's, if you have to weight it in any kind of formula or model, its weight is maybe half what it was two years ago. Um, and it, you can probably halve the weight of, of the cycle every four years going forward or something along those lines. It's, it's just diminishing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think um, one really interesting analogy from the halvings was, was from Willie. And he basically now, you know, it's like you're in a bathtub and you push the water and it sends an impulse and that causes a shock, you know, shock in the water, ripple effect in the water. It's like the larger the pool of water, that same effect doesn't have as much impact on the overall. It has some, right? But it doesn't, you know, in 2013, exactly. you're cutting the supply in half and you have this massive effect. Yeah, I think that, may, I think that's, that makes a lot of sense. And I pretty much share your exact thoughts as well i yeah. really don't have anything to add on so cool man well hey look I, I really appreciate you coming on this was this was an awesome conversation um we went into way more than i even had had written down to go into so man love to, love talking to you before we wrap up i just want to give you a quick plug for your newsletter because for anyone listening charles has an excellent newsletter uh as well as your maybe your, your fun website or your twitter whatever else you want to plug in yeah, thanks, Will. It's been been great and uh, always a pleasure to talk to markets. Um, yeah, so yeah, you can check out caprioli.com and we have our, our monthly newsletter there or you can, uh, you know, I'm pretty active on Twitter. It's at uh, caprioli.io. Appreciate the time, Charles. Take it easy. Talk to you soon. See you later. Bye.